Chapters 15 and 16 of The Way of All Flesh. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rhonda Fetterman. The Way of All Flesh by Samuel Butler. Chapter 15. The hymn had engaged my attention. When it was over, I had time to take stock of the congregation. They were chiefly farmers, fat, very well-to-do folk, who had come, some of them, with their wives and children from outlying farms two and three miles away, haters of popery and of anything which any one might choose to say was popish, good, sensible fellows who detested theory of any kind, whose ideal was the maintenance of the status quo, with perhaps a loving reminiscence of old war times and a sense of wrong that the weather was not more completely under their control, who desired higher prices and cheaper wages, but otherwise were most contented when things were changing least, tolerators, if not lovers, of all that was familiar, haters of all that was unfamiliar. They would have been equally horrified at hearing the Christian religion doubted, and at seeing it practiced. "'What can there be in common between Theobald and his parishioners?' said Christina to me, in the course of the evening, when her husband was for a few moments absent. "'Of course one must not complain, but I assure you it grieves me to see a man of Theobald's ability thrown away upon such a place as this. If we had only been at Gaysbury, where there are the A's, the B's, the C's, and Lord D's place, as you know, quite close,' I should not then have felt that we were living in such a desert. But I suppose it is for the best, she added more cheerfully. And then, of course, the bishop will come to us whenever he is in the neighborhood, and if we were at Gaysbury, he might have gone to Lord D's. Perhaps I have now said enough to indicate the kind of place in which Theobald's lines were cast, and the sort of woman he had married. As for his own habits, I see him trudging through muddy lanes and over long sweeps of plover-haunted pastures to visit a dying cottager's wife. He takes her meat and wine from his own table, and that not a little only, but liberally. According to his lights, also, he administers what he is pleased to call spiritual consolation. "'I am afraid I am going to hell, sir.' says the sick woman with a whine. "'Oh, sir, save me, save me, don't let me go there. I couldn't stand it, sir. I should die with fear. The very thought of it drives me into a cold sweat all over.' "'Mrs. Thompson,' says Theobald gravely, "'you must have faith in the precious blood of your Redeemer. It is He alone who can save you.' "'But are you sure, sir?' she says looking wistfully at him, that he will forgive me, for I have not been a very good woman, indeed I haven't, and if God would only say yes outright with his mouth when I ask whether my sins are forgiven. But they are forgiven you, Mrs. Thompson, says Theobald with some sternness, for the same ground has been gone over a good many times already, and he has borne the unhappy woman's misgivings now for a full quarter of an hour. Then he puts a stop to the conversation by repeating prayers taken from the visitation of the sick, 
and overawes the poor wretch from expressing further anxiety as to her condition. "'Can't you tell me, sir?' she exclaims piteously, as she sees that he is preparing to go away. "'Can't you tell me that there is no day of judgment, and that there is no such place as hell? I can do without the heavens, sir, but I cannot do with the hell.' Theobald is much shocked. "'Mrs. Thompson,' he rejoins impressively, "'let me implore you to suffer no doubt concerning these two cornerstones of our religion to cross your mind at a moment like the present. If there is one thing more certain than another, it is that we shall all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, and that the wicked will be consumed in a lake of everlasting fire. Doubt this, Mrs. Thompson, and you are lost.' The poor woman buries her fevered head in the coverlet in a paroxysm of fear which, at last, finds relief in tears. Mrs. Thompson, says Theobald, with his hand on the door, compose yourself, be calm. You must please to take my word for it that at the day of judgment your sins will all be washed white in the blood of the Lamb, Mrs. Thompson. Yea, he exclaims frantically, Though they be as scarlet, yet they shall be as white as wool. And he makes off as fast as he can from the fetid atmosphere of the cottage to the pure air outside. Oh, how thankful he is when the interview is over. He returns home, conscious that he has done his duty and administered the comforts of religion to a dying sinner. His admiring wife awaits him at the rectory, and assures him that never yet was clergyman so devoted to the welfare of his flock. He believes her. He has a natural tendency to believe everything that is told him, and who should know the facts of the case better than his wife? Poor fellow! He has done his best, but what does a fish's best come to when the fish is out of water? He has left meat and wine. That he can do. He will call again, and will leave more meat and wine. Day after day he trudges over the same plover-haunted fields, and listens at the end of his walk to the same agony of forebodings, which day after day he silences, but does not remove, till at last a merciful weakness renders the sufferer careless of her future and Theobald is satisfied that her mind is now peacefully at rest in Jesus. Chapter 16 He does not like this branch of his profession. Indeed, he hates it, but will not admit it to himself. The habit of not admitting things to himself has become a confirmed one with him. Nevertheless, there haunts him an ill-defined sense that life would be pleasanter if there were no sick sinners or if they would at any rate face an eternity of torture with more indifference. He does not feel that he is in his element. The farmers look as if they were in their element. They are full-bodied, healthy, and contented. But between him and them there is a great gulf fixed. A hard and drawn look begins to settle about the corners of his mouth, so that even if he were not in a black coat and white tie, a child might know him for a parson. He knows that he is doing his duty. Every day convinces him of this more firmly. 
but then there is not much duty for him to do. He is sadly in want of occupation. He has no taste for any of those field sports which were not considered unbecoming for a clergyman forty years ago. He does not ride, nor shoot, nor fish, nor course, nor play cricket. Study, to do him justice, he had never really liked. And what inducement was there for him to study at Battersby? He reads neither old books nor new ones. He does not interest himself in art or science or politics, but he sets his back up with some promptness if any of them show any development unfamiliar to himself. True, he writes his own sermons, but even his wife considers that his forte lies rather in the example of his life, which is one long act of self-devotion, than in his utterances from the pulpit. After breakfast he retires to his study. He cuts little bits out of the Bible and gums them with exquisite neatness by the side of other little bits. This he calls making a harmony of the Old and New Testaments. Alongside the extracts he copies in the very perfection of handwriting extracts from Mede, the only man, according to Theobald, who really understood the book of Revelation, Patrick, and other old divines. He works steadily at this for half an hour every morning during many years, and the result is doubtless valuable. After some years have gone by, he hears his children their lessons, and the daily oft-repeated screams that issue from the study during the lesson hour tells their own horrible story over the house. He has also taken to collecting a hortus siccus, and through the interest of his father was once mentioned in the Saturday magazine as having been the first to find a plant, whose name I have forgotten, in the neighborhood of Battersby. This number of the Saturday magazine has been bound in red morocco and is kept upon the drawing-room table. He potters about his garden. If he hears a hen cackling, he runs and tells Christina and straight away goes hunting for the egg. When the two Miss Allabys came, as they sometimes did, to stay with Christina, they said the life led by their sister and brother-in-law was an idol. Happy indeed was Christina in her choice, for that she had had a choice was a fiction which soon took root among them, and happy Theobald in his Christina. Somehow or other Christina was always a little shy of cards when her sisters were staying with her though at other times she enjoyed a game of cribbage or a rubber of whist heartily enough, but her sisters knew they would never be asked to Battersby again if they would refer to that little matter, and on the whole it was worth their while to be asked to Battersby. If Theobald's temper was rather irritable, he did not vent it upon them. By nature reserved, if he could have found someone to cook dinner for him, he would have rather lived in a desert island than not. In his heart of hearts he held with Pope that the greatest nuisance to mankind is man, or words to that effect, only that women, with the exception perhaps of Christina, were worse. Yet for all this when visitors called he put a better face on it than anyone who was behind the scenes would have expected. He was quick, too, at introducing the names of any literary celebrities whom he had met at his father's house and soon established an all-round reputation which satisfied even Christina herself. Whoso integer vitae scelerisque puris 
it was asked, as Mr. Pontifex of Battersby. Who's so fit to be consulted if any difficulty about parish management should arise? Who's such a happy mixture of this sincere, uninquiring Christian and the man of the world? For so people actually called him. They said he was such an admirable man of business. Certainly if he had said he would pay a sum of money at a certain time, the money would be forthcoming on the appointed day and this is saying a good deal for any man. His constitutional timidity rendered him incapable of an attempt to overreach when there was the remotest chance of opposition or publicity, and his correct bearing and somewhat stern expression were a great protection to him against being overreached. He never talked of money and invariably changed the subject whenever money was introduced. His expression of unutterable horror at all kinds of meanness was a sufficient guarantee that he was not mean himself. Besides, he had no business transactions save of the most ordinary butcher's book and baker's book description. His tastes, if he had any, were, as we have seen, simple. He had nine hundred pounds a year and a house, the neighborhood was cheap, and for some time he had no children to be a drag upon him. Who was not to be envied, and if envied, why then respected, if Theobald was not enviable? Yet I imagine that Christina was on the whole happier than her husband. She had not to go and visit sick parishioners, and the management of her house and the keeping of her accounts afforded her as much occupation as she desired. Her principal duty was, as she well said, to her husband, to love him, honor him, and keep him in good temper. To do her justice she fulfilled this duty to the uttermost of her power. It would have been better, perhaps, if she had not so frequently assured her husband that he was the best and wisest of mankind, for no one in his little world ever dreamed of telling him anything else and it was not long before he ceased to have any doubt upon the matter. As for his temper, which had become very violent at times, she took care to humor it on the slightest sign of an approaching outbreak. She had early found that this was much the easiest plan. The thunder was seldom for herself. Long before her marriage, even, she had studied his little ways, and knew how to add fuel to the fire as long as the fire seemed to want it and then to damp it judiciously down, making as little smoke as possible. In money matters she was scrupulousness itself. Theobald made her a quarterly allowance for her dress, pocket money and little charities and presents. In these last items she was liberal in proportion to her income. Indeed she dressed with great economy, and gave away whatever was over in presents or charity. Oh, what a comfort it was to Theobald to reflect that he had a wife on whom he can rely never to cost him a sixpence of unauthorized expenditure. Letting alone her absolute submission, the perfect coincidence of her opinion with his own upon every subject, and her constant assurances to him that he was right in everything which he took it into his head to say or do, what a tower of strength to him was her exactness in money matters. As years went by he became as fond of his wife 
as it was in his nature to be of any living thing, and applauded himself for having stuck to his engagement, a piece of virtue of which he was now reaping the reward. Even when Christina did outrun her quarterly stipend by some thirty shillings or a couple of pounds, it was always made perfectly clear to Theobald how the deficiency had arisen. There had been an unusually costly evening dress bought, which was to last a long time, or somebody's unexpected wedding had necessitated a more handsome present than the quarter's balance would quite allow. The excess of expenditure was always repaid in the following quarter or quarters, even though it were only ten shillings at a time. I believe, however, that after they had been married some twenty years, Christina had fallen somewhat from her original perfection as regards money. She had got gradually in arrear during many successive quarters, till she had contracted a chronic loan, a sort of domestic national debt, amounting to between seven and eight pounds. Theobald at length felt that a remonstrance had become imperative and took advantage of his silver wedding-day to inform Christina that her indebtedness was cancelled, and at the same time to beg that she would endeavour henceforth to equalise her expenditure and her income. She burst into tears of love and gratitude, assured him that he was the best and most generous of men, and never during the remainder of her married life was she a single shilling behind hand. Christina hated change of all sorts, no less cordially than her husband. She and Theobald had nearly everything in this world that they could wish for. Why, then, should people desire to introduce all sorts of changes of which no one could foresee the end? Religion, she was deeply convinced, had long since attained its final development, nor could it enter into the heart of reasonable man to conceive any faith more perfect than was inculcated by the Church of England she could imagine no position more honourable than that of a clergyman's wife, unless indeed it were a bishop's. Considering his father's influence, it was not at all impossible that Theobald might be a bishop some day. And then, then would occur to her that one little flaw in the practice of the Church of England, a flaw not indeed in its doctrine, but in its policy, which she believed, on the whole, to be a mistaken one in this respect. I mean the fact that a bishop's wife does not take the rank of her husband. This had been the doing of Elizabeth, who had been a bad woman, of exceeding doubtful moral character, and at heart a papist to the last. Perhaps people ought to have been above mere considerations of worldly dignity, but the world was as it was, and such things carried weight with them whether they ought to do so or no. Her influence as plain Mrs. Pontifex, wife, we will say, of the Bishop of Winchester, would no doubt be considerable. Such a character as hers could not fail to carry weight if she were ever in a sufficiently conspicuous sphere for its influence to be widely felt, but as Lady Winchester, or the Bishopess, which would sound quite nicely. Who could doubt her power for good would be enhanced? And it would be all the nicer, because if she had a daughter, the daughter would not be a bishopess unless indeed she were to marry a bishop too, which would not be likely. These were her thoughts upon her good days. At other times she would, to do her justice, 
have doubts whether she was in all respects as spiritually minded as she ought to be. She must press on, press on, till every enemy to her salvation was surmounted, and Satan himself lay bruised under her feet. It occurred to her on one of these occasions that she might steal a march over some of her contemporaries if she were to leave off eating black puddings, of which whenever they had killed a pig she had hitherto partaken freely, and if she were also careful that no fowls were served at her table which had had their necks wrung, but only such as had their throats cut and been allowed to bleed. St. Paul and the Church of Jerusalem had insisted upon it as necessary that even Gentile converts should abstain from things strangled and from blood, and they had joined this prohibition with that of a vice about the abominable nature of which there could be no question. It would be well, therefore, to abstain in future, to see whether any noteworthy spiritual result ensued. She did abstain and was certain from that day of her resolve she had felt stronger, purer in heart, and in all respects more spiritually minded than she had ever felt hitherto. Theobald did not lay so much stress on this as she did, but as she settled what he should have at dinner, she could take care that he got no strangled fowls. As for black puddings, happily he had seen them made when he was a boy, and had never got over his aversion for them. She wished the matter were one of more general observance than it was. This was just a case in which, as Lady Winchester, she might have been able to do what, as plain Mrs. Pontifex, it was hopeless even to attempt. And thus this worthy couple jogged on from month to month and from year to year. The reader, if he has passed middle life and has a clerical connection, will probably remember scores and scores of rectors and rectors' wives who differed in no material respect from Theobald and Christina. Speaking from a recollection and experience extending over nearly eighty years from the time when I was myself a child in the nursery of a vicarage, I should say I had drawn the better rather than the worse side of the life of an English country parson of some fifty years ago. I admit, however, that there are no such people to be found nowadays. A more united or, on the whole, happier couple could not have been found in England. One grief only overshadowed the early years of their married life. I mean the fact that no living children were born to them. End of chapter 16 Recording by Rhonda Fetterman